Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Revelation 1, verses 9 through 16. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Um, We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for your risen son, Jesus, the glorified son of man that we see here this morning. We thank you so much that he is here to help us, to purify us, to help us patiently endure all the way until the end, that we might see his victory in completion. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts this morning as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So it's been a while since I've been up here. For those of you who uh, are relatively new to Orchard, uh, it's been since April since I had the, uh, both the privilege and responsibility. My sleeves are rolled up. Liza said, you're ready. And so here we go. War is an awful thing. We all know that. It's horrific. When soldiers are asked what kept them in the fight, why they did what they did, you hear a common answer. I fought for the man next to me. The objective or political goal wasn't at the front of my mind. I knew that the man I fought with needed me, and I needed him. That's what got soldiers through the day-to-day horrors of combat. But every now and then, the general comes down and reminds the men, sometimes simply by his presence, sometimes with his words. Remember, here's why we are fighting. Here's the big picture of what's going on. Here's why this operation matters to the overall mission. Now, there's another side to inspiring these men, the soldiers. It's accountability. Knowing that the general is checking in, that he's keenly interested in, and what we're doing creates an accountability that leads to the ultimate goal, which is victory. When the general visits, he sends an overarching message, I 
need you to endure. Don't give up the fight. That's what we have with this passage today. In John's vision, Jesus is coming to his churches. He comes as purifier of his church. We'll see that in the next seven weeks as we make our, through, make our way through each of the seven tr- churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And you'll note that as his role as purifier of the church, he has something against five of the seven churches, something that he wants fixed. But Jesus is also coming to inspire and encourage them to stand fast in the face of persecution, tribulation, and opposition. He knows they are in a war against the gospel, a spiritual, a mental, emotional, even physical war. There are some passages of Scripture that are known to be a great comfort. For example, Psalm 23 perhaps is the best example of this. The Lord is my shepherd. There are some passages that we think of for deep theological truths. John 1 comes to mind. There are passages that correct and train us. Mark 8, after Jesus rebukes Peter for seeing things with an earthly mindset, he says to Peter, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up the cross and follow me. And then some passages inspire us. And that's what we have here today. You can't help. You can't help but be inspired when you read and hear of John's vision of the risen Jesus. It might be a little frightening. And honestly, the brothers use the word terrifying. That's good. It needs to be a little terrifying, a little frightening. But we know that fear is only a, a crummy motivator. Love is what drives us all the way to the finish line. And we'll see Jesus' love for his churches in this passage as well. With that, let's look at the first point in our outlines, the king's message. And this is uh, verses 9 through 11. The king's message. I'll just read it again for you. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Notice what John says. This is an apostle appointed by Christ himself. And he calls himself brother and partner. And he could have said apostle, right? But they all knew who was speaking here. And he aligns himself on the same level as the recipients of this letter. He aligns himself in particular along three vectors. As you look at this passage again, three vectors. He says... Your, part, your brother and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now, here's the thing. These are not three unique things, per se. They're actually facets of one thing, and John says exactly what they are right here in the Bible for us. They're all part of being in Jesus. This is what it looks like. The kingdom, patient endurance, tribulation. Being a disciple of Jesus brings all of these things, and it requires patient endurance. But what does he mean by tribulation? Now, we know that the early church suffered great persecution. The the Roman emperor Nero, just to back up a second, Lars mentioned this to us last week, some of this, and I I did a little bit of research on myself uh, as well on this, and it really is um, uh, just awful the way that our brothers, our first century brothers and sisters, were treated by the Emperor Nero. He was particularly violent against Christians. In AD 64, 
Uh, So roughly 30 years or so after Jesus died and resurrected, a fire burned through Rome for six days, and it actually destroyed three-quarters, three-quarters, 75% of the city. And then the citizens actually speculated that it was Nero who burned it all down. And, And whether it was or not, in an attempt to sort of deflect the pressure off of himself, he blamed a small sect of Jews called Christians. Roman historian Tacitus reported the following in his book, Annals, written in 116 AD. This is what he writes. Mockery of every sort was added to their death. Speaking of Christians. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt, listen to this, to serve as nightly illumination. When daylight had expired, Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus when he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft on a chariot. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion. For it was not, as it seemed, for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that these Christians were being destroyed. Now, we know from Peter's first letter that the churches in Asia Minor suffered persecution. James, who was executed in AD 62 for the gospel, wrote to believers across the Mediterranean. What did he say? Count it all joy, my brothers, when what? You face trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. Brothers and sisters, he wasn't talking about a bad day at work. Or your car breaking down. He was talking about being persecuted, burned alive for the name of Jesus. This is what he was talking about. And it's during these trials that Jesus has a message for his churches in Asia Minor. He's not willing to leave them alone. Now, let's just look again here at at verse 10. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I, I heard behind me, a loud voice like, like a trumpet. Now, can you imagine being John? I'm just sort of imagining that, you know, it's, the, it's Sunday. It's, it's the Lord's Day. It's the day of the week when he's, he's worshiping. And maybe, maybe he's on his, his knees. Maybe he's, you know, maybe he's here. And perhaps he's got some of his, uh, some, some of his scrolls. Perhaps even, as we'll see, maybe it's the scroll of Daniel open next to him, and he's, he's praying. He says that he's in the Spirit. Now, I don't think that he means any sort of ecstatic experience, just that he was worshiping. And he's on his knees, and he's praying. And then what happens? Okay, I'm kidding. <laughs> I was thinking about trying that. It's been about 33 years since I last worked on my embouchure, so I'm not going to do that this morning. But imagine this. Hey! A loud voice like a trumpet behind him sounds off. Jesus calls out, and he tells John he has a message for his seven churches in Asia Minor and to write it down. Here's where we see the general leaving his headquarters, coming down 
to his soldiers on the front lines. And again, we'll look at that message in clear detail in the, in the next seven weeks. But first, he wants them to be inspired, and he's going re- to do that by revealing his majesty. So let's look at the king's majesty in point two. Like any normal person who hears, <laughs> like any normal person who hears a, a loud, a voice like a loud trumpet, John says, what? <laughs> What's going on behind me here? And what does he see? He sees Jesus glorified. What follows is, is both beautiful and terrifying. But I want to be careful here that we think clearly about this, what John sees. I think um, we have to be careful in the sense that we don't necessarily need to take this literally. It's, I don't think it's meant for us to take this literally. I think uh, Lars helped us last week when he mentioned, uh, suggested kind of the category of a, a political cartoon. Right, So in a political cartoon, you see the politician, perhaps with really large ears, and you know in real life they don't have ears that large, but the cartoonist is drawing the ears that large, large to, to make a certain point. And I think that's kind of what we have here. This vision of Christ provides us with, with metaphors, really, of his unique characteristics and role as the Son of Man. And so, we see Jesus, or or John sees Jesus. Now, I just want you to note, where is Jesus? Where does he see him? He sees him in the middle of the lampstands, right? There are seven lampstands, and he he sees Jesus all in the, rather, in the middle of those those seven lampstands. Not, Not above them, not outside of them, not around them, but in the middle of them. This is, a, this is a small detail, but it's really important. What does it tell us? It tells us that he's not above or outside of us, but in the middle of us, near us, ministering to us, shepherding us. To go back to the military analogy to the general, he's not the general who sends down orders and waits for those orders to be executed. He does issue the order. He is in charge. Make no mistake. But he equips us. He's with us to execute those orders. Now, John goes into a long list. We heard Wendy read this list. He goes into a long list describing what he sees. But his first description, he says, I saw one like a son of man. Is it a really important one? Now, there's two kinds of son of man. First, there's a son of man like you and me, right? A son of man, a daughter of man. This was actually in the, the prophet Ezekiel. This is the title that he ascribed to himself, speaking of himself, son of man. Go and write what you see. Many times Ezekiel says this. But then there is the son of man, capital S, capital M, who is God's chosen one. Daniel encounters in the, in, a, in the prophecy of Daniel, Daniel encounters the Son of Man in chapter 7 of his book. And in verses 13 and 14, he, he kind of writes out a description. And I'll, I'll just paraphrase for you from, from verse 14. And he says uh, uh, from Daniel 7, he says about this Son of Man who came on the clouds, to him was given dominion, which means control. He's given dominion and and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, every person, 
nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Son of man, this is really interesting. I didn't know this until I actually began to prepare for this passage. Son of man was actually used 80 times in the gospel, gospels. And it was Jesus' favorite title to use for himself. Isn't that interesting? Not Christ, not Messiah, but Son of Man. Why is that? Why do you think that is? Well, certainly, Jesus is letting people know, hey, I am the fulfillment of this prophecy from Daniel. I am the Son of Man. But I think there's also something else going on here as well. He knew that first century Jews knew who the Son of Man was. And they knew that the Son of Man from Daniel 7 was kind of a big deal. And so, if he's walking around telling everybody, hey, I'm the Son of Man, I'm the Son of Man, what's he doing? He's forcing people to reckon with him. You can't just hear somebody say, yes, I'm the Son of Man, and say, oh, he's a good guy. you got to do something with that. He's forcing them to say that he's actually the son of man or he's a blasphemer or a liar or blasphemer and a liar. There isn't an alternative for prophet or martyr or great teacher. It doesn't exist. He claimed to be the recipient and ruler of God's kingdom. So I I love C.S. Lewis. He plays upon this on on Jesus' technique and probably brings it you know, more in tune with kind of our first century mind since we weren't raised on the, on the, the, the Torah and, and all these Old Testament scriptures like a first century Jew would have been. But he has this grid of lunatic, liar, and Lord. And I know many of you have heard this before, but I think it's worth repeating. Lunatic, liar, or Lord. Jesus is one of those three. But you, you can't simply say that Jesus was a good man, a great teacher, an excellent example I mean, certainly it was all of those things, but because of the claims that he makes, he can't be just that, right? You can't just say, oh, he was great. I really like what he had to say about the poor, or, you know, he really stuck it to the religious class. I like that about Jesus. He's a, he was a great guy. That ignores what he said about himself. You, you can't stop there. So you got to take it to the logical conclusion. And so if you're being intellectually honest, you have to say this guy was either a lunatic, no one in their right mind would say the things that Jesus said. Right? No one would ever say that. But if you look at his life, he doesn't demonstrate that of a crazy person. We've all maybe met or heard of people who claim to be Jesus, and they're not like him at all, or claim to be Christ, rather, and they're not like him at all. He was very much in touch with reality. So if he's not crazy, then he's got to be a pathological liar. Because, again, if he isn't who he says he is, then he's lying. But if he's a liar, then all that stuff that you were just saying about being a good person and a great example, well, that's just a bunch of rubbish. Because no liar is a good person, right? Well, that leaves us then with the final option. Jesus as Lord. He's not crazy, he's no lunatic, and he's not a liar. Then he must be who he says he is. The Son of Man. So when you see Jesus 
refer to himself as son of man in the scriptures here going forward. I just would say, just remember, he's not only asserting that he fulfills that Daniel 7 prophecy, he's also asserting that he's your Lord and Savior. I think that's why he used it 80 times. And I would just say for those of you here this morning or maybe listening or watching or whatever, who haven't really wrestled with that before, and you love Jesus as a, as a great guy, a great example, an awesome teacher, you want to be like him, but you've never actually wrestled with the fact that he's, he wants more than that. He actually wants to be your Lord. He actually wants you to confess your sin, repent and turn and trust. I challenge you to do that this morning. I hope you'll consider how a person who was slain on the cross like a sheep slaughtered is now this guy that we see here this morning. So in verses 13 and 16, John is seeing this glorified Son of Man, and he describes eight unique characteristics of Jesus. And as we dwell on each of these, I just want to consider what this says about our King and about his majesty. There's some beautiful word pictures here, and I hope it leads us to worship. So in verse, first in verse 13, John writes that Jesus was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, this robes certainly convey a priest, uh, but in this context, it actually has a lot more to do with, with dignity and high rank. They carry some connotation of judgment as well, which makes sense given the context of what's coming in chapters 2 and 3. Remember, He's got something against these churches, almost every one of them, right? So there's, there's a sense of, of correction coming from Jesus as well. Now, as for the golden sashes, they too speak of his dignity. A working class person would wear a sash kind of around the waist, right? So that way they could kind of pull up their tunic, tuck it in, and get to the hard labor that a working class person would have. But, but a person of dignity and station would wear a sash kind of across their chest. They didn't need to tuck the tunic in. They weren't doing hard labor. So Jesus has a long robe and a sash around his chest to, to connotate his, his dignity and high rank. The hairs of his head, in verse 14, the hairs of his head are white, or were white, like, like white wool, like snow. Jesus' hair is white, but not just white. It is brilliant and stunningly white. You know, white hair conveys wisdom. I know many of you are nodding your head, yes, yes, this is... Wisdom. We know that with age come gray and white hairs. And if you've lived a circumspect and godly life, it also brings wisdom. But with Jesus, it's not just wisdom like some of us have wisdom here today. This is infinite, divine wisdom. Back to that Daniel 7 passage, when Daniel has this vision, he sees the Ancient of Days, who is God, who has white hair. So Jesus shares that same characteristic as with God. Continuing in verse 14, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, this is where I think we have to be thoughtful about thinking very literally about these things and where it's, I think, helpful to think about them metaphorically. It's not that, you know, he said that they are like a flame of fire, right? Not that Jesus' eyes were actually shooting flames and throwing fireballs at people across the room. I mean, that would be cool, but that's not what John saw. He uses the word like or, or as 
many times throughout these uh, verses because he's doing his best to describe things for which we really have a hard time defining them. There's not a good category for these things. So John can give us a sense of what he saw by using uh, using things we know, like wool and fire and bronze and roaring seas and the sun. So what does this mean? Jesus sees us with all-knowing, supernatural, penetrating vision. He sees with all-knowing, supernatural, penetrating vision. Again, not in the sense of kind of seeing through walls. Again, that would be cool. But in the sense of seeing things for what they really are. Now, as you get into, as we go through these next these seven churches in the next two chapters, at the beginning of each one, he says, I know. I know. And he goes on to describe what they're doing well and where they are failing. Not only does Jesus see things for what they really are, he sees each one of us for who we really are. And I'll be honest, you, you can fool a lot of people. I mean, I'm easily fooled. I think we all are easily fooled from one time or another. But here's, you can't fool Jesus. It's not possible. With eyes like a flame of fire, with penetrating, all-knowing vision, he sees through all of our fake-it-till-you-make-it garbage to who we really are. That should be a little scary, but for those who submit to him in trust and obedience, it's actually a great comfort. It's a great comfort. He knows. Here's why. He knows who I am. He knows who I really am, who I'm afraid to admit to myself who I am. And he still loves me. He still loves me. He still died for me. He still rose for me. We can be honest with God because he already knows it already. But for his adversaries, there is no comfort, nor should there be, because, and why is this? His eyes, like a flame of fire, also convey a fierceness to our Lord and Savior. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. (laughs) Why did John go to his feet? Like, I don't think he's a shoe guy like Alex Strauch. You know, a couple weeks ago, Alex is over here and he's showing us how his shoes and his belt match. For those who were here, it was really great. But... um, you know, and I think Alex pretends like he's not into sartorial issues, but I actually think he is. I think he knows what's going on. But anyhow, this isn't what John's about, right? I don't think he's a shoe guy. Everybody wore sandals anyhow. Um, I think the reason that, that John records this part of his vision is just how intense the glow from his burnished bronze feet are. They, in fact, the, every single commentator that I read on this said, there's not a good, John was using a word for which we don't really know what he was trying to say here because there's not another word like it anywhere else in the scriptures. And so, and to some degree, we're, we're kind of making our, an educated guess as to what he's trying to convey here. But I think the sense is this, is that Jesus' feet just aren't shiny. They're not just polished. They're actually glowing as if they like, just came out of the furnace. Okay, that's pretty cool, but what does it mean? Well, to put somebody under your feet is to defeat them completely. Remember when Joshua, I don't know if you guys remember this, when when the the tribe of Israel came into the promised land and they were taking the land and they had defeated the the bad guys, the tribal leaders, what did he do? He had them put 
their feet on the neck of the defeated enemy. Right? What about Psalm 110.1, where David writes that God will make all his enemies a footstool for his feet. And so we have these unbreakable bronze feet crushing the enemy. But, but they're also, here's the thing for the church. Jesus isn't here to crush his church. That's for outside his church. But what about us? These are pure bronze feet, refined in a furnace, glowing with purity. Now, there's something kind of shameful about feet. It wasn't until I, it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I would wear flip-flops, okay? I just didn't want people to see my feet. At least I think there's something shameful about them. In Bible times, people wore sandals, and they, and they walked dusty streets and paths, and there was animal dung everywhere. And I mean, I'm sure it's not like they were trying to, like, they, were, they didn't care and would just walk through it. But, I mean, when there's dust and animal dung, particles are going to land on your feet. I mean, that's just going to happen, right? That's really... You know, part of the, the life back then, right? So feet were kind of gross, right? Um, they were always dirty, nasty, covered with impurities, but not Jesus' feet. Think about the seraphim in Isaiah 6. So a seraphim is a form of angel. The seraphim had six wings, two to fly, two to cover their eyes, and then what were the last two? Cover their feet, Right? Because feet represented impurity, and so they had to cover them. So even a seraphim, who is totally sinless, had to cover his feet in honor of the purity of the Lord of hosts. But not so with Jesus. There's no covering his feet. There's nothing impure about him. He gets to show off his feet of burnished, glowing bronze because he is completely pure. And that's the point for the church. Purity is on his mind when it comes to the church. As he prepares to address these seven churches, he's thinking about purity. Continuing there in verse 15, his voice was like the roar of many waters. If you've ever been to the northern California coastline where it's kind of rocky and craggy and the waves crash with thundering power, you've heard the roar of many waters. Or how about this? Let's go east. If you've ever been to Ontario and to Niagara Falls where you hear... 681,750 gallons of water per, not minute, per second fall over the Horseshoe Falls on the Canadian side, you have heard the roar of many waters. Maybe a little closer to home, you've ever stood by a, a mountain river swollen with snow melt, water rushing down over boulders the size of Volkswagens. You've heard the roar of many waters. And what is that one? What do they all have in common? What is the thing that you think of as you stand next to these rushing waters? You think of power, strength, might, the fearful awesomeness of, the, of all of it. And so it is with the risen, glorified Jesus. His voice, like the roar of many waters, brings to mind his power. Now, in verse 16, his right hand held the seven stars. This is a mysterious situation, but Jesus gives us the answer below in verse 20. The stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and he holds them in his right hand, which is both the primary place of protection and blessing. The seven angels then are his blessed messengers to the churches. And then in verse 16 as well, a, a sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth. 
This one, I think, is a little easier to understand. We probably think of Hebrews 4.12, where it refers to God's word as a a two-edged sword. But then listen to what it says about the word of God, how it is, how how sharp this two-edged sword is. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Like his eyes that are a flame of fire, God's word also penetrates us, discerning who we truly are. But here's the thing. That sounds awful, but without God's word, we would have no chance to know who we truly are. We would have no chance to know who he truly is. God's word is an incredible gift to us. Made us possible to know him and to know our spiritual blindness and death. God's word is a comfort and source of strength, but it is sadly a destroyer and killer of his enemies. Think of 2 Thessalonians 2.8 where it says the son of lawlessness, which is another way of saying the Antichrist. God, Jesus, will kill him simply with the breath of his mouth. That's all it will take. Sometimes we say that so-and-so has a sharp tongue and we mean that their words cut, but Christ has the sharpest tongue of all. Continuing on then in verse 16, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. I'm sure we think of Moses coming down from the mountain, right? Having spent all that time in the presence of God, his face glowing and shining. But he was merely reflecting the sun, right? He was merely reflecting the, the glory of Christ. The sun out here... And the sky does amazing things. You can't even look at it for more than a second. And you'll burn your eyes out. Who made the sun? Who put it there? Who made galaxies full of billions of suns like that one? So at the end of this vision, what does John do? Well, he does what any sane mind does would do. He falls on his face as though dead. But here's the cool part. John, Jesus doesn't leave John there. Now, we've probably all been in situations, or maybe we've gone to meetings where we meet someone or been in a situation where it's really intimidating. Maybe they're just really big humans. (laughs) Uh, Maybe their, their physical presence is unsettling, or it could be their position and the authority of that position. Like going up to present to the CEO or to your commander or whatever. That can be intimidating. And sometimes the meeting is meant to be intimidating. If you've ever walked into a courtroom, you know what I'm talking about. That's not supposed to be a place of comfort. It should be a little scary. But none of those meetings compare to this. The glorified Son of Man. Manifesting, manifesting so many characteristics of, of power, of purity, of omniscience, and judgment. It's a frightful sight. We tend, I think, and maybe this is a, just a, a self-defense mechanism of, of the flesh, but we tend to make God a lot smaller than he actually is. <laughs> In our sin, we want to make a God of our own making. 
But God, we can control. We may not fashion that God from wood or metal or bronze or stone like they did, you know, in first century, the first century world, but we do make our idols. We fashion our idols with ideas, right? Sometimes we think of God like a, let me just give you one example. We think of God like a genie in a bottle, here to give us happiness, a full life, good health, a job, obedient, sanctified children, in Ephesians 5, marriage, but without all the work and sacrifice. But when we come face to face with God, when we come face to face with Jesus, we realize he's something much different. In C.S. Lewis's children's allegory, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the, the four children have made their way into Narnia through the magical wardrobe in their uncle's house in the English countryside. And now they're transported into Narnia. And I'll spare you all the details, but they run into Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Now, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver do not bow the knee to the white witch. They, they bow the knee to Aslan. They're part of the rebellion. And they know that these four sons and men, sons and daughters of man, are a part of the prophecy. And so they say, we, we've got to take you to Aslan. You've got to meet Aslan. So Mr. Beaver says to the four children, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. If we learn one thing from John's vision, it's that Jesus isn't safe, but he is good. And his goodness is on full display in the second half of verse 17 and all of 18. So look at point three with me in your outline, the king's mercy. And I'll just read verses 17 and 18 for you. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. John falls as though dead at Jesus' feet. But look closely at what Jesus says and what he does. He says, fear not. He isn't seeking our fear. He's not seeking our fear. He doesn't manifest himself so that we might fall down dead with dread. But look even closer at what he does before he says those words to John. He says... He doesn't say anything. He puts his right hand on his shoulder. Why does he do that? He does that because he knows what it's like to be human. He inhabited a body and inhabits, even today, a body like us. He knows the power of human touch. He knows our weakness. Do you remember what happened to Jairus' daughter? She died 
And Jesus came and called her back to life. Talitha Kumi. Little girl arise. And she came back to life. Many of us know that story, right? We've heard that story. But have you ever seen what happens next? It's just sort of tucked in there, kind of at the end of the story. He tells the people who witnessed this great miracle to do what? Get her something to eat. (laughs) Isn't that something? The God of the universe, who we've just seen manifested in all his glory, reaches down and touches John on the shoulder. John, I'm with you. Fear not. He knows what it's like to be human, to feel the warmth and comfort of human touch. And not in some theoretical way, but because he actually became a person himself. John, Jesus goes on to say why John need not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. And at the cross, Jesus, so at the cross, I should say, Jesus not only won redemption for his people, he also won a victory over the effects of sin. And that is, of course, eternal death. Now, Jairus' daughter and Lazarus, they actually both came back to life, but only to die a physical death again. They were revivified, so to speak. But Jesus' resurrection is a forever coming back to life. That's why we can say he has defeated death. And all who are in him, all who trust in him, or who have found life in him, will enjoy that same eternal life that he has. So this passage concludes with Jesus' command to John to write down what he's seen, what is, and what will take place. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine John just scrambling around looking for like an ink and a plume and like, oh my gosh, oh man, it's usually right here, where is it? Uh, thankfully, it would seem that John had no such problem. He was able to start writing, it seems, right away. So thank- and thankfully... Jesus gave us the answer key to the seven stars and the seven lampstands in verse 20 as well. So in conclusion, um, we are out of time, and I had a lot of application here, but I'm just going to give you one point, and that's this. If there's nothing else that you do with today's passage, I hope and pray that you worship the risen Savior. Worship Jesus. Daniel 7, as we referred to earlier, Daniel 7 tells us that to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all peoples, nations, languages should do what? Should serve him. And as we think about And you have this mental image. Again, not necessarily this is exactly what Jesus looked like. John's trying to convey things that he was seeing. But as you think about this long robe and the golden sash and the white hair and the eyes, a flame of fire. And you think about the the sword, two-edged sword, which is the word of God coming out of his mouth. As you think about his burnished, glowing bronze feet. As you think about the roar of many waters, it was his voice. As you think about holding the seven stars in his hand, protecting them. As you think about all of these things, his face shining like the sun, I pray and hope that you worship and that you fall 
on your figurative and sometimes your literal face in worship of Jesus and know that for his redeemed, which we talked about this morning, that for his redeemed, that he is, he wants you to hold fast, but he is holding you fast. This is the God who secured your redemption and nothing can change that. I hope that we've been inspired by John's vision of Jesus. Christian, this is your king, risen, mighty, powerful, glorified. Think about this. The lamb slaughtered is the king triumphant. The hands pierced with nails are now the hands that hold you. And not only is Jesus not in the tomb, he's back and better than ever. Sin and death had, do not have the final word. And they did not have the final word. Death was swallowed up whole in his victory. Now the war is not over. But here's the thing, and Lars said this last week. It has been won. It's not over, but it has been won. And where was it won? At the cross of Christ on Calvary. To wrap up where we started, the general is coming on his white horse to the front lines to remind us here today, be faithful, stand fast, struggle on in the patient endurance because he's won. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this great word about your son Jesus and his just awesome majesty, and we do worship, Lord. We are so thankful that we have your word here. We're so thankful that you gave this vision to John, this word to the seven churches that we're going to hear, Lord. And as we think about our own lives and what it is that you would have us do, sometimes, Father, it's just simply worship. Sometimes it's simply just to drink it in and to know that, that Lord, you, you've got us and you are in control. We, we're so thankful for that. We pray that you would continue to use this word on our hearts this week and as we go through these next seven weeks, that you would teach us, mend us, reform us, bind up our wounds, and send us back to the front lines where we can carry out your orders as you've asked us to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.